So what central banks should be doing is using other technologies better, right? They should be using, I don't know, DynamoDB um, and learning Go and, and Rust and better programming languages, <laughs> right? They don't need a blockchain. They just need to stop being terrible at technology. A CBDC is the antithesis of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. It's not the same thing at all, right? Because you've got a central authority. So you're wasting your time with the blockchain. You're wasting your, your time with public key cryptography. You don't need it because you've got a central authority. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Don't forget right now, you can pre-order my book, To the Moon, The GameStop Saga. There are still four copies that you can get where you can get your name and the message to the apes put in. Are you trying to quit smoking? Maybe perhaps as part of a smoke-free January or simply to make yourself healthier in the midst of a pandemic. Well, today's sponsor is Nin Zero Tobacco Nicotine Pouches. Nin is a cutting-edge synthetic nicotine pouch brand that's setting new standards for nicotine pouches in the US with its lineup of Zero Tobacco Nicotine Pouches. Nin Zero Tobacco Nicotine Pouches are the latest innovation in nicotine technology. Made with TFN synthetic nicotine, Nin pouches are available in two nicotine strengths, 3mg and 6mg, and five signature flavours. That's Citrus Chill, Cinnamon, Cool Mint, Spearmint and Wintergreen. As a truly 100% tobacco-free product, Nin pouches do not contain any tobacco-specific nitrosamines, which are thought to be some of the most potent carcinogens found in tobacco products. Whilst tobacco-derived nicotine often features a strong, pungent odour and taste, synthetic nicotine is virtually tasteless and odourless. On a final note, we must remember that tobacco cultivation, which is commonly very heavily subsidized, can be very damaging to the environment and is often a process that is highly labor-intensive, cumbersome, and wasteful. So these pouches are better for you and better for the environment. Nin pouches are made for adult users and contain tobacco-free nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. You find links for everything in the description below. Hello, and welcome to the Ohio Hauntings and Legends podcast. We will be taking you to places you have never dreamt of going. Hundreds, if not thousands, of haunted and abandoned locations. We will visit with the paranormal from your nightmares and try to understand the unexplained. Ohio alone has 88 counties within our state, and virtually each one of those counties has a story to tell. Ohio's history is bloodstained throughout its history. We will be covering more than just Ohio. We will cover the state you live in, the country. Trust me, there are thrills, chills, and we are upping the fright factor with each new stop we make. We will be traveling the world, the globe, looking for the strange, the mysterious, and the frightening. Mostly, we will find the unexplainable. Many of these episodes are genuine. Others are legend or hearsay. Believe those that you choose or believe in none. It is your choice. Just get comfortable, sit back, Dim the lights and listen.
Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Okay, so hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am very lucky to be joined by Stephen Sidley and Stephen, uh, sorry, and Simon Dingle. So guys, uh, welcome to the show. You guys are the authors of Beyond Bitcoin, Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. So here's the book, everyone. Um, yeah, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Josh. Good to be here. Good to be here. Nice. Yeah, no problem. So um, yeah, as I mentioned before we started, um, I'm really, really enjoying the book. Um, I'll put the link for everyone in the description below so you can check it out. But uh, it's it's been a really great overview of a lot of the questions that I have about this space and where we can see it going. So I'm really excited to sort of get more thoughts from you guys on on yeah where the entire DeFi um, world is is going to take us. So why don't we start with just what is decentralized finance or DeFi for people who are maybe not 100% familiar with the term? Okay, um, I'll take a crack, Simon. If you want, if you want to add in, go ahead. Decentralized <laughs> finance is a term that was given to a set of financial functionalities which were re-engineered by mostly fairly young people who were steeped in crypto technology. So they took a look what was happening at banks. They took a look at what was happening in insurance companies. They took a look at what's happening in stock exchanges and bond exchanges and traditional exchanges. And many of them said to themselves, you know what, we can reproduce these services at a fraction of the cost in a more democratized manner and in a fairer manner so that the banks and the insurance companies and the exchanges simply won't be able to compete with us. The banks particularly, just to start there, the banks, this is, this is so tautological as to be self-evident, we, we, there are black box which we can't look into. So if you want to complain about your transaction fees or the interest rate that you're getting on your savings deposit or what they're charging you for, for your, your house loans, and you walk into the bank and say, let me see the calculations, they'll tell you to go away. And of course, you don't go away because it's a lot of friction moving to another bank. In addition, if you're somebody with you know, 10 pounds to open a, a, a current uh, transaction account versus somebody who has 100 million pounds um, uh, inheritance and you walk in, you will be treated differently. The one person will have the phone answered immediately. The other person won't get the time of the day and will get the worst rate. So it is not fair for all of us. Not everybody is treated equally. It's very difficult to move from a bank. It's very difficult to complain and be heard. The equivalent services from a bank, and by the way, banks really do two things. They borrow money and they, uh, they lend and borrow. They lend money from you and they give you some interest rates. And, and uh, sorry, they borrow money from you and they lend money to other people. It's really, they do other things like payments and risk management, but two functions since the Medici's in the 1100 will lend and borrow. And so they were able to put together algorithms that would do the lend and borrowing. There was no human mediation. They were very, very low cost. They were very fast. There was zero time to settlement as opposed to if you want to send money across the world to somebody overseas, you've got to deal with, you know, foreign exchange and, and multiple banks and SWIFT, etc. And in almost any way that you care to measure, the crypto financial projects are orders of magnitude, more efficient, fairer, less expensive, and better for the people who are using them. And that entire body of projects are called DeFi. And we try to, in the book, describe what's happening with lend and borrow, and what's happening with insurance companies, and what's happening with stable coins, and what's happening with all the rest. So uh, that's a rather rambling reply, and Simon, if you want to add to that. 
I'd probably just add that that decentralized finance is is really an inevitability of the internet doing to the financial industry what it has to every other industry. So what it's done to media, what it's done to our social networks, uh, etc. This is really the internet being brought bare to to finance. Mm, that's an interesting way to put it because I sort of. I've had this this vague similar thought about the this the sort of rise of the retail investing market. Where were we? Somewhere. Uh, yes, the 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 inevitability of um of of this has changed. So I'd seen the I thought that like finance had had its revolution essentially. You know, there was like a few years where everything was like fintech, um, and there was a lot of internet banking, and I kind of figured that the financial space had taken that disruption that came to other parts of the economy and, and sort of taken it in its stride. And that was it. Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of felt like that was, yeah, that it was over. Like where, where did this like new revolution really begin for you guys? We actually devoted so... a chapter to this, this very topic. The chapter is called lipstick on a dot, 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 which is rather unfair. And it has to do with fintech. And what fintech did was bolt on a bunch of very clever front-end technologies, very user-friendly, great user experience, great user interfaces, got rid of the complexity so that you could quickly sign up to a traditional bank. So in the back end, there was still the traditional bank. You know, they were going into the large banks or they were facsimiles of traditional banks. The difference with DeFi is they rewrote the back end completely as crypto initiatives. Does that sound about right, Simon? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know, I I spent a good deal of my career working um, with with um, with fintech companies and startups uh, in the UK and South Africa and elsewhere, uh, Singapore, um, and and really it was about taking the traditional world of finance and making it more efficient, which is fantastic. So a lot of innovation around um, you know remittance of of, of forex. Um, onboarding banking, making it easier to KYC, open a bank account, etc. But as Stephen said, really not fundamentally changing anything. Um, so one can debate exactly how innovative it is. You know, innovative innovation means means fundamentally changing the way something works. And FinTech didn't really fundamentally change the way it finance worked. It just made it more presentable and more efficient. Whereas decentralized finance really uh, you know, affects the heart of 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 how the entire industry functions. It, it changes the, um, you know, the the fundamentals. So that it and and really that that lies in the decentralization. Nothing in fintech was decentralized. Um, there were unbundling and bundling and and a lot of concepts like that. Um, you know, that were bandied about. Um, but but really decentralization and 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 offloading a lot of the functions of finance onto decentralized networks and, and you know, distributed ledger technologies. That's a fundamentally different undertaking from, from the rest of FinTech. Hmm. So I guess um, the, the, the question that I'm still trying to figure out, and obviously you guys address this um, quite, quite a lot in the book, especially early on, is where, where the line is where banks will still be required, essentially. So, so to, to what extent is this going to shrink the the financial institutions that we have or um totally subsume some of their their operations and, and practices yeah so so when we we had in the tagline to our title which is the end of banks 
that was somewhat metaphorical. It's, it, you know, the idea came from a, a historian by the name of Francis Fukuyama, who wrote a book called The End of History in the late 90s, which was about the fact that capitalism had beaten communism. It wasn't really the end of history. Um, neither is this the end of banks. But what it certainly means is banks will have to react, um, reform, and in some cases deform, and in some cases shrink because there will be new competition. But there is no way that a traditional bank will be able to go into the future without some very wrenching and painful changes. Simon, if you want to... Yeah, I think it's also a question of necessity. It's it's not to me. It's not a question of whether or not banks cease to be. It's a question of whether or not you require them to to you know do a set of of things. And um, and fundamentally, I th I think already for a lot of people who are familiar with uh, blockchain technologies, who are you know comfortable protecting their own keys and have a protocol around that, they don't necessarily require a bank. And so. You know, I, I believe banks will be around in some form or the other, but whether or not they'll be necessary is the real question. And for a lot of people, you know, growing number, the answer is no, we, we don't need them for anything. Um, so they may still be there and they may still be serving, you know, some portion of the population, but but you can do the things that you would achieve with a bank without them. Yeah, so so at the beginning of the book, we, we, we went out and researched a couple of, you know, celebrity bankers and to try and hear what they were saying about DeFi. There was, I think, Jamie Demon and the CEO of Bank of America, and they're, they're all, quite frankly, scared shitless of what is coming. In fact, one of them, I think, said, we're not scared of Bitcoin. We're scared of this stuff because this stuff replaces what we do. And just to give one example of something that's immediately available um, with very low friction, okay? I have in a British bank account some money in a, a checking account, which is earning far less than... I don't even know what's turning. It's probably very close to zero at this point. And, and that money sits there and there's not a hell of a lot I can do because all the banks are offering the same low interest rates as a result of the world's um, financial situation. I could take that same money and I could put it into a stable coin. Now, for your listeners who don't know what a stable coin is, a stable coin is not one of the volatile ones that you read in the newspaper like Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or any of the others whose prices go up and down at terrifying rates. Stable coin's value is pegged to the dollar or another currency. And I can immediately and within seconds be earning 11% and higher on that. If you compare 0.1% of the checking account and the zero friction, zero risk way to get 9, 10, 11, 13, 15% from one of these DeFi initiatives. That is a mouth-watering prospect, not only for the retailer, but for any institution. They're going to save themselves, well, you know, I've got all this money in the Bank of England, I can take it out and I can give it to Compound or AAVA or Curve or any of the other ones, have it zero risk because it's in a stable coin and be earning 10 times or more as much interest rates. That is a real prospect on the table right now and it is a low-risk prospect. What would people specifically be doing with the stablecoin to be earning ten or eleven percent? Just just for people's, uh, are they going to be staking it or or? Go Simon. <laughs> yeah, I mean they would be putting it to work in in um, decentralized money markets um, that in some ways are similar to the way traditional money markets would work and 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 earn a yield. So there are various strategies for for how that's achieved. One thing they could do is they could enter a, um, a protocol like Compound or Aave, um, and they could be providing collateral that is then used in in lending mechanisms to other users. Um, 
and and there's it this is one of those things that's sort of abstract to talk about but there's an aha moment that happens when you engage with these protocols that to me is similar to the first time i used uber um and and this is prevalent in in the us um specifically where i was in new york and and i had i was an early user of of uber i was invited to to try out the the uh, the platform in some cities uh, and I was telling a friend in New York about it, and he said, well, you know, why would I use this? We've got excellent taxi infrastructure in New York. And he was like, look at this. And he stepped out into the road and put up his hand, and a, and a taxi cab stopped, and he got in. And he was like, you know, see you later, stupid. And, and he was off. And I got a, a call on my phone two months later, and he was like, holy crap, I've just downloaded Uber and used it. It's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And it's really, it's one of those things where <laughs> you, you you kind of have to have the experience yourself because um, it, it almost sounds ridiculous until you have that experience and see how much better it is. But you can come to a protocol like uh, Aave, for example, and you may have some Ethereum that's worth X amount um, of sterling today um, and have a requirement for, for cash. You can lock that asset into this protocol as collateral and you can take out a loan against it. So, you know, you could lend a, a sterling stable coin or a US dollar stable coin like DAI, um, you then walk away from that loan and you've, you know, you've, you've, you've got your stable coin that you can go and convert into cash, into a bank account, you know, use it for whatever you need. Um, and you can come back later and you can repay that loan. And if the price of Ethereum has gone up, you know, you're basically buying your Ethereum back at yesterday's price. So it's a no brainer. You're kind of you know, you, you get back the asset at, at, at almost an, an option price, if you will. Um, and if the price of Ethereum has gone down and this no longer makes sense to you, you can just walk away from the collateral and you'll be liquidated and, and somebody will get your Ethereum. Now, these protocols are enabled by people coming to them on both sides of the equation. So with the asset being Ethereum in this example, or the stable coin being DAI, um, and you're rewarded for contributing to these systems and mechanisms and protocols um, with an interest, if you will, that gets earned from loans being repaid in this example. But there are various mechanisms um, where staking collateral or providing an asset into a protocol will get you a reward because it's being used in some way. Yeah, I, I, I want to give another example of, of a very famous DeFi protocol um, that is doing something that is not a, a, a replication uh, or more efficient replication of what we see in today's bank, but it's a product that a bank cannot do. And it was developed by one single person who happens to be South African, who was a computer program, his name's Andre Cronier, and the DeFi initiative is called Yearn. And he took a look around, he was kind of in the space a couple of years ago, and he saw what was going, he saw these DeFi protocols and initiatives that were paying good interest rates. But some of them would be paying very high today, 26% today, and they would drop a few days later, and the other ones would be different. They were all popping up, and they were all paying different interest rates. So a little, little piece of code at the top that snuffed around the landscape and chose the highest interest rate and dropped money in there. And as soon as that interest rate starts dropping, it pulled it out and moved it to another DeFi interest, uh, protocol with a higher interest rate. So it kept your interest rates as high as they could possibly be. The, the, the phrase that he uses for Yearn is it was the world's smartest savings account. Now, in the world of real people who have bank accounts, there is no way that you can have your money in you know, Lloyds and decide that the other bank has a better interest rate and pull it out for six hours and put it over there and then pull it up and put it somewhere <laughs> else. 
the mud in the system, the bureaucracy in the system, not only makes it impossible, but the banks make it impossible or very difficult to withdraw. So Yuan is a protocol that has no equivalence in the traditional finance world. And there's lots of that sort of stuff going on. That is a, um, a genre of DeFi protocols called yield farming, where you look for the best yield, as opposed to buying something like Bitcoin or ETH and hoping that the price goes up. It's an entirely different separate set of um, um, expectations that the user has. And some of these yields are over 100%. Obviously, that's not sustainable forever. But I'll give you an example from my own portfolio. I, it, it's related to Yearn, and in the past year, I've earned 50%. Now, where am I going to earn 50%? Anywhere. Yeah, I think it is important to add, however, Stephen, that there is a lot of risk involved in these protocols. It's early days. Um, and some of these yields, um, you know, the way that they're presented can be deceiving um, because your yield will be calculated and presented to you in a token that the protocol is, you know, generating itself and paying to you. And so, you know, the the yield you're receiving is very real if the protocol token manages to maintain its value. Um, but of course, these tokens are, are volatile too. And so and so, the actual reward you're getting uh, could be negative. Um, it could be massively positive. Um, but I think, it, you know, you know, it, it would be irresponsible to talk about these yields without mentioning that there is a, a large degree of risk attached to most of them uh, in the current status quo. And so, so, Simon, if I could just pick up on your thought, when, when Simon talks about one has to be fairly careful with, with, with the claims of, of, you know, outsized returns, this is still the Wild West DeFi. It's, it's not ready for prime time. For an order for somebody who's got another job and is not in the crypto business to understand at depth how all these protocols work is a very large undertaking. So there is still a gap mm between the people who know how to wrestle this machine to the ground, and there are people out there making absolutely, you know, the best way to do it is insulting amounts of money because they yeah. know how to wrestle the machine. <laughs> yeah. And then there's the rest of us who know something's going on. And as these DeFi initiatives mature, particularly from a user experience and UI point of view and an explanation point of view and a risk management point of view, you will find more and more people on the retail having the courage or, or, or feeling comfortable by putting the money in. Yeah. I think another important uh, point to add before we move on is that these kind of yields would be possible in traditional finance, but would be incredibly time intensive and laborious to execute. So if you spent all day seeking out arbitrage in financial markets, um, you know, trading one currency against the other and then moving currency into a bank account in another country so that you could execute a trade on a market where there was a massive arbitrage, etc. There are a lot of things you could be doing in the traditional financial world that would get you those kind of yields. But you'd literally have to be at it 24 hours a day. You'd need access to banking in 24 countries, you know, if not more. Um, and, and a whole set of, of, of other parameters that your average human being just would never be able to get, get, get into. Um, whereas in the world of decentralized finance, much of these processes are automated. Um, access is permissionless, so you can have whatever you want in the world of decentralized finance so long as you're technically capable um, of you know understanding and, and executing on, on whatever it is you want to do. And so 
an incredibly complicated set of trades that would take three weeks, cost you know a, a lot of time and money in the traditional financial world, can be executed in DeFi in seconds. And so I think a lot of uh, of that kind of um, shock and awe that you get when you see these yields and go, how is that possible that somebody's making 50% a month? Well, they could be doing the same in traditional finance. It would just be really difficult. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's akin to many of the things we achieve on the internet today that seem miraculous compared to what was possible 20 years ago. If I go, hey, Josh, I've got a picture of my cat and I'm going to get it to you in two seconds in 1980, you're like, dude, <laughs> sure, if it's black and white on a fax machine, but otherwise you're going to have to get it on a plane, you're going to have to fly to me overnight, this can't be done in two seconds, it's just not possible. But with the internet, of course it is. And so I think a lot of decentralized finance, when you say to people, I'm earning 50% in this really complex set of protocols that are seeking out the best strategies of, you know, arbitraging or trading or whatever it may be, people go, yeah, that's just not possible because they're thinking in terms of traditional finance. But when you apply, you know, um, internet scale and speed and what's possible with smart contracts into, into to what's happening here, then it's like, yeah, well, of course you could do that. You could do that. Mm. So do you see, so you, you talked in the book actually early on, I think, about um, banks and, and trust as, as like the, their, one of their main functions. So do you see that, that trust aspect as being the, the thing that will remain and what will be lost will be everything that can be automated essentially by, by yeah, smart contracts and other, other little bits of tech? Is, is the trust part the thing that the banks will still have? And the the sort of like anything that can be automated will and sort of DeFi will take over that side of of, of finance. So, so I you know I I've, I wanted to say a few words about this and then I, I want to hand over to Simon because he actually wrote a book whose whose title was In Maths We Trust. So, so he also done quite a lot of thinking around this. But it turns out that banks have been able to gain our trust since again about the 11, 12, 1300, since the Medici banks, which were the first modern banks, in that they said, bring us your valuables. We promise we'll keep them. We won't steal them. You can come back and get them any time. Sooner or later, they learn to loan out of that stuff to other people without, without, you know, with, without any risk involved. And they built up an enormous amount of wealth. Banks became the center of economies and nation states. So when you walk into your bank in, in downtown London, which is this marble behemoth, at the Mercedes and the, 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 the basements and the huge art on the wall. What it is trying to do is look how well we, can, we are doing. You can trust us with your money, otherwise we wouldn't be able to have this thing. Of course, they avoid the whole topic of you're paying for the building and you're paying for the paintings on the wall. The trust has been earned by them because they don't lose your money. That's true. And they get your payments done and they're able to transfer, etc., etc. I see we've lost Simon for a second here. Um, yeah. Okay. I'll just, well, maybe I'll, he'll come back. Yeah, maybe he'll come back. So that trust is 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 valid in banks, and we pay for that trust. How do we pay for that trust? We pay for that trust because they take a little piece of every transaction or every deposit we make. When crypto came along, and the trust was devolved from a brand, and the experts who work in that band, the bankers, people who work over there, when it was devolved into a piece of mathematics. It turns out that the best trust of all is to trust no human beings because they make you pay for it. The smart contract or the little program that is exercising 
your the the financial transactions or the financial projects is math and math does not require trust because it's embedded in the algorithm itself um, Simon you've thought more about this than me so yeah I mean it's 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 fascinating because if if you think about it this is really how um, we used to conduct transactions and and uh, and trust in in ancient societies. Um, if you go back to the way that money worked in in tri early tribal societies, because you know we've really had money for as long as we've had language, just about as human beings, um, the way that that transactions would work is that when there was a value transfer from from one entity to another in a tribe, the entire tribe would kind of record that transaction, and there would be a knowledge everybody had of you know who owns what. So you know, Josh has just given this thing to Stephen. So now everybody knows that it's not Josh's anymore, it's Stephen's. And and the message would spread around the tribe and everybody would know that, that you know, that Stephen was now the owner of this asset. And of course, there'd be great violence that would broad be, you know, be applied to anybody who, who contravened. And, and that was a fantastic way of doing things, some would say, but it didn't scale at all. Um, and and so, you know, we progressed through through chieftains and, um and and different kind of authorities emerged in human societies that we would vest our trust in and that would operate these these networks for us um but really it it wasn't until the invention of of bitcoin and and nakamoto consensus that we found a way to conduct trust at scale where you no longer required a central authority and it was possible for peers to transact directly with each other and if you would humanity was recording the record of these transactions and you didn't require um, a third party or a central authority to verify transactions um, and to record who owned what, etc. Um, so really that decentralization of trust that's, that's reintroduced by the blockchain is quite an ancient way of doing things that just didn't scale. And now it's possible to achieve that kind of trustless transactional network at scale. Um, just, just to add to this, this, yeah. the story about trust, we did a little bit of research when we were writing the book about how much of the world's economy is dedicated to the trust industry. Okay, so when I talk about the trust industry, it is the middleman industry, people who execute things on your behalf and you trust them to execute things on your behalf. It's not only your bank. It's, it's it, when you think of a financial transaction, it's the point of sale provider. It's a telecommunications company who carries your transaction from the point of sale. It is the Swift Network for International, it is your bank, it is your merchant's bank where you bought the bus, there's the visa in, in this loop, there are, you know, 10 or 20 people who are being trusted to conclude and settle that transaction. And every one of them is taking, is, is, is seeking rent. In the world of insurance companies, it's exactly the same. You are trusting the claims adjuster, you are trusting the insurance company to, that the algorithms are correct, that they will pay you out, that they will settle your claim. It's the same in exchanges. You, you trust them to find a buyer for the stock that you're selling and to settle that transaction and they extract rent. Your lawyer, your, um, th there is a whole slew of, of people in the world who act as trustees, basically, for how you want to live your life. It's 6% of the world's economy, which is many hundreds of, many trillions of dollars. And the promise of decentralized technologies is to devolve that trust into a trustless set ecosystem where you don't require rent to be extracted in order to devolve that trust up. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's... Uh... 
the whole trust aspect is one that I, I basically hadn't considered that that was the function that banks were fulfilling until I, I really thought about, well, until I read the book and I was like, hang on, that's, that's exactly what it is. Because I've been trying to talk about like what money is and what, um, sort of, you know, what, what currency is and, and sort of what, whether it's just like what people believe it is. And, and this idea of trust is, is so central in, in finance that we almost forget that it's there. Um, so the the next thing that I wanted to quiz you on was um, something we talked about before we started the the NFT space. So um, the first time that I had someone on my podcast talking about it, he essentially said that he believed it was a f just a smart way to launder money. <laughs> um, but I I've come to believe that there's probably a lot more uses in that space than than I first understood. So um, do you want to give us an idea of of what you think the primary use of NFTs are? People who have heard the word NFT um, related to the fact that there are a bunch of investors who are paying very large amounts of money for sometimes questionable bunch of pixels. Worse, they're paying a large amount of money for a sometimes questionable bunch of pixels that you can do right-click, save as image, and not pay for it. And the newspapers are full of both the sensationalism of this, the sex appeal of this, the numbers that are being used. The last sale of a bored-looking ape, a cartoon ape, which is about yay big, sold for $12 million just the other day. Um, NFTs is not about that. That is sort of the, the, the pixie dust on top of it, which is dragging the industry along without it. So I'm going to try and describe why, why I'm excited about NFTs. NFTs represents a new way to own things. Um, and ownership, um, as we were discussing before you, you started the, the podcast uh, a little while ago, ownership is understood by everybody, or even children, that you own this thing, it belongs to you. NFTs allows you a way to describe an ownership in the most flexible and dynamic and infinite of terms. So you can own something today and let your sister own it tomorrow and then cede half the ownership of next week. And whenever it's sold again, you can pull some money back. It's just wildly infinite because the NFT is basically a computer program. It's a cryptographic program, security, centralized permissionless, all those fun words that you hear around this. But it is a certification of ownership and the nature of that ownership is utterly flexible. Now, how does this compare with the ownership that we know in the real world? Well, your title deed to your house is not flexible. It says you own it. Sometimes you can get co-ownership in a title deed to a house, but you can't say I own the house today and I'm going to let somebody own it tomorrow and it's going to come back to me on the third day because the system's not set up that way. So while NFTs apply to arts is fun, NFTs as an ownership reimagined is profoundly important. And so NFTs will end up being applied to everything. One other simple example before I, before I switch off over here. You have assets in your house. Uh, I'll give you an example of my house. I have an old Steinway baby grand piano that was my grandfather brought out from Germany a long time ago, and it's worth quite a lot of money. And it sits in my living room and it is played, but I can't put that asset to work. I can't borrow against it. There is no certification of ownership. In the world of NFTs, I can apply an NFT, I can bind an NFT to that piano and can go out to a site right now called um, Niftify and I can borrow against that Steinway Baby Grant. That sort of dead asset management brings 
potentially trillions into economy, which was not possible to do before. There are a whole bunch of other examples about NFTs, but I'll stop there. As long as you separate it from the sex appeal of the art stuff and look under the hood at what this could mean to the future of ownership, it, it becomes profoundly important, perhaps as important as some of the crypto stuff we've been talking about. So it's like a pawn shop for the internet. No, really, like that's 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 what it seems like to me. No, <laughs> but that's essentially what some of these these protocols are. It just it turns out that being able to take loans against assets is 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 profoundly useful in a way that pawn shops aren't. And I, I think really that that that's you know uh, again we're re we're introducing functionality that just wasn't possible before. Um, but but that fixes a lot of problems. Um, you know, one of the one of the problems that NFTs addresses, and this is something that's prevalent both with the provenance of art, but also with ticketing at, at concerts, for example, um, is fraud. Right? Um, you know, so so yeah, if you were going to a sports event or or to a music concert, for example, um, this is a this is a big problem that existed with ticketing before. Um, is that you'd get counterfeiting, you'd get fake tickets being sold outside arenas, etc. Um, whereas NFTs basically solve that overnight. There's no way to counterfeit a, a cryptographic signature. So if I, for example, sold you um, a concert ticket as an NFT, that would be a cryptographically secured asset that's either in your Ethereum wallet or it isn't. Uh, and when you get to the arena, you're scanning your QR code, signing a message to say, I do actually own this thing. There's no way to fake that, right? There's no way to produce a counterfeit of that asset. And so whether you're talking about the provenance of art and who owned it before you did, for example, or whether you're talking about access to an event, that's a massively powerful idea and fixes a lot of problems that existed in the old world in a way that just wasn't possible before. Um, it also opens up a whole explosion of creativity um, and, and things that were just weren't imaginable before. I think, you know, one of the first big music examples were the Kings of Leon selling an album as an NFT. And really what you were getting was not just ownership of the music, um, you were getting entrance to a club um, and a, a perpetual golden circle ticket at any Kings of Leon uh, concert for, you know, in perpetuity for as long as the band's around. If you have one of those NFTs from buying the album and you show up in a Kings of Leon concert, you scan your Ethereum wallet, sign a message, and you get access to Golden Circle. You know, that kind of connection between artist and community was just not possible before. And so it's opening up a whole world of opportunities that are just, you know, remarkable. It's like this Cambrian explosion that's happening. I think Board Ape Yacht, Board Ape Yacht Club is a fantastic example of as well of, of when you hand rights over with an NFT, right? So if you buy a Board Ape, you're not just getting the artwork or ownership of the artwork. You're also getting rights to use that artwork in your own work. Um, and I think that's why Board Ape Yacht Club has done so well is because other artists are taking their apes and using them in their own work. Um, and it becomes this kind of you know, remix or, 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 or what have you. And, and brands are using them in their marketing because they're allowed to do that because they're conferred rights for marketing. So, so really non-fungible tokens achieve so much more um, than just indicating ownership. Of course, they do that too, because that's essentially what a, an NFT is, right? It's a token that represents ownership of something unique. Um, and there are a lot of lazy criticisms around right-clicking, which just has never made any sense to me. You know, I was at the Louvre last year and I took a photo of the Mona Lisa 
does that mean I've rendered the Louvre's ownership of the Mona Lisa entirely pointless? It's like, what are you saying, guys? You know, I can replicate a magic card or a, a baseball card um, and, and, and produce a, a, an identical copy of it using my HP printer at home. You know, that doesn't mean that the original doesn't have value to somebody who imbues it with that, because that's really what value is for human beings, right? It's something we choose to give an item, a work of art, a passage of music, whatever. It's, of course, none of it makes sense in the greater scheme of things. The universe doesn't compute any of these things. Um, but it's just such a lazy argument to bring to, especially art NFTs, to say, well, I can right-click and save it. Yeah, well, you can take a photo of a painting too. You can replicate a statue. Exactly what you're saying. <laughs> there's, there's, there's one more application of NFTs that, that there's Bez mentioning here because it, it's the one that has got the art community. When I talk about art, art with a big A, so music and, and the rest of it. Um, very, very excited. One of the great bugbears of creative people throughout history is that when the creative work leaves their fingers or their mouth or whatever, um, and it gets sold to somebody, that's the last revenue they see. So you sell a piece of artwork, and even though there are laws saying that resales should bring a royalty back to the original artist, they are never put into practice and very difficult to prove. So you've got artworks that you get to sell only once. Most artists sell the artworks only once. With an NFT, part of the program that's attached to the NFT, part of the smart contract, the NFT contract can say, every time this work is sold, the NFT does not settle and close until X percent of the sales price is carved off into Ethereum wallet and sent back to the original artist, which unleashes billions of dollars that never get back to the original artists throughout mm. history, something one couldn't do previously. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I'm thinking about the number of artists in any, any space, whether that's musicians or, or painters or, or, or anything where, they sell their early work for for nothing and then that ends up becoming the most valuable because it's yeah they're the the least replicated or the least widely distributed or it's their original thing and that they then they the artist never sees the fruits of of that thing becoming really valuable yeah i just i i'd never really thought about just how much that must happen to people you know, like what if what if Van what if Van Gogh's family had been able to benefit off the off the resales of all his work over the years when he became famous? Yeah. Hmm. Or someone less less tragic that's still alive to get it, you know. <laughs> there was a, a podcast that dropped recently, Freakonomics, which is a three part series on art. And uh um, Dabner interviews uh or he plays a clip that happened in the 1960s at an art opening in which the artist had sold a, um, a, a painting for very little money and he had since gotten famous and now that painting was worth a thousand times the original price. And he was screaming at the seller saying, I didn't get any money from this. How dare you? And there was nothing he could do. You know, that's the way that, that's the way the world worked back then. It changes with NFTs. Hmm. Yeah. So the the thing that when when you started talking about the the tickets being sold outside the you know you can't sell fake tickets basically outside and and get away with it in in this in this world. The thing that kept like springing into my mind was so the 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 center of the entire GameStop um saga that that sort of happened last year and is still ongoing was 
um, naked short selling, which I don't know if, if you guys are familiar with, with what this is. So essentially it's that, it's just like making up shares and selling them, saying that you have them on the basis that you're going to go and find them later on, or maybe not even bother. And that, that would just completely remove that as an option. You know, that, that, that would, that this could like revolutionize how transparent company ownership is as well. Like, like leaving aside the sort of NFT dividend thing that GameStop are rumored to be doing, that it, it provides like a whole new way for, yeah, company ownership to be transparent and and totally accountable. That it's it, you've made me think about this in a completely different way. <laughs> so, so thanks for that. This is I have a lot to think about after this interview. <laughs> let me just just let me so, add something over here, which you're kind of edging towards, and, and maybe you were talking about that, which is uh, DAOs, decentralized autonomous organizations, which is very, very closely connected to the crypto world, and which is very new, probably just a couple of years old as well. <laughs> and I want to talk about the great fiction of business. The great fiction of a business is that we form corporations using memoranda of incorporation. We use shareholder agreements, partnership agreements, which, which, which define who's in charge of the company, who has the right to sell, who has the right to buy, who has the right to get dividends, who has the right to fire and hire. All those documents that sit within business organizations have been structured according to various regulations and laws around the world. That's all fiction. We made that stuff up because it was appropriate to do it, and it made things easier to build a company and for everybody to follow the rules. Decentralized autonomous organizations, which have sprung up all over the place, the best known one I think you probably know of is when a bunch of guys got together to try and buy a copy of the American Constitution, is where you get a community of interests that springs up and they make their own laws as to how this community of interest should interact with each other. Do they want a CEO? Don't they want a CEO? Do they want dividends? Do they want the right to hire and fire? Can be structured in an entirely different way than traditional regulations that sit under Delaware in the US or one of the other the centers, centers of governance. And there, there is one venture capital company um, in Silicon Valley, I forget which one, who traditionally would give money to a startup and then give a second round to the startup and then series A to a startup and then finally it would go to public markets. It's it's the standard funnel that they push these companies in. All of them with a lot of those documents about shareholding and governance and you know boards of directors, etc., who have said we're not doing this anymore. From now on, everybody we're investing in is going to be a decentralized autonomous organization. They're moving the entire investment strategy into the DAO world and away from the traditional VC world. So this is another upcoming set of technologies closely connected to crypto, closely connected to DeFi, partially connected to NFT, depending on circumstance, which is going to be a major game changer. And it's still in the very definitional phase, like like the buying the American Constitution example from a couple of months ago. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, um, the 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 head of the hedge fund that um, is at the center of the GameStop uh, thing was also involved in that attempted bid of the uh, on the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> the Constitution. Though, yeah. 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 So uh, Ken Griffin, the the head of Citadel Securities, was also bidding on it. Um, so there has been the last year has brought this outrageous rise of meme coins, Dogecoin, then there was Shiv, and there's been just th that entire altcoin space just 
absolutely exploded um, in the last year. Are they all just gimmicks and trash? Or do they have any utility in your mind whatsoever? Like, is it, is it a good thing that, that people can just sort of make their own token? Or is that sort of too dangerous, essentially? Or too, yeah, are people not responsible enough? I think it's a good thing that people can make their own tokens. But I do think that 99%, especially of the dog coins that you've alluded to, um, are just complete trash. It's it's There's really no reason for them to to exist and certainly no reason for them to have any value. Um, but there are some interesting ideas that are being pointed at by these projects. Um, I think the, 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 the rise of GameFi is interesting. Um, so seeing, you know, the impact of decentralized finance and, and crypto and NFTs to the world of gaming, something there's a massive backlash against at the moment. It's, it's, it's actually quite crazy how vehemently anti-NFTs, I think, uh, a lot of the gaming community are. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, especially around resource consumption. Um, but, but you know, barring those those few exceptions where there's there's something legitimate being tried to add value to gaming or whatever it is, you know, the majority of these these dog coins are are just an absurd waste of time and energy. Um, and 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 in some, you know, in, in the biggest example, they were started as jokes. I mean, Doge Doge was started literally as a joke. It was you know, poking fun at cryptocurrency. Um, the the original founders kind of walked away with it uh, from it and it, it got adopted by a community. But there's there's kind of something beautiful about that as well, you know, um, that people who who did find value in this meme coin um, took over the project, made it their own, um, managed to get somebody like Elon Musk to step into the fray um, and to aid their cause. Um, and, and, yeah, Lex Friedman's on board as well now. As well, he's a he's a Dogecoin maxi. I can't tell if it's just a joke, but he did say it. <laughs> and and as Lex points out, and I think Elon does as well, there's something about absurdity, um, you know, and 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 meaningful things coming from absurd backgrounds. That's just intrinsically human, and um, you know, I suppose anthropologists could could carry on all day about these things, but um, but you know, fundamentally, it's a lot of noise. Um, I always talk about it as a Cambrian explosion. You know, we needed a Cambrian explosion uh, to be here today. We needed all of this weird crap to crawl out of the ocean three billion years ago to try experiments on what it meant to be living on land <laughs> um, so that we could get it right. Um, and I think it's the same with any new technology or, you know, any new field of innovation, any new frontier. You need a Cambrian explosion. You need lots of experiments. You need a lot of crazy ideas. Yeah, of course, most of them will fail you know i don't think any any industry escapes the burrito principle um but you know you need all of those failures you need all of that experimentation so that you can get to the real value that lies somewhere within and so you know i look at all of these meme coins and dog coins and cap coins and um and all of this craziness um and i see it sort of optimistically as as us trying different experiments and different things and sure you can you can be cynical about it and say it's just some idiot in his garage trying to make a quick buck and in, in a lot of cases you'd be right um but there's also a lot of, of valid experimentation that's going on um and 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 i think that attaching things like currency to permetics in a you know if you just take that as 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 a simple kind of entry point to a lot of these experiments there's a lot of value in that right it's not something that's really happened before our, our mimetic connection to currency would be our connection to our nation state before, whereas now we can be kind of granular about it. And I can have, you know, 
my weird my little pony club that's got its own coin and if that's valuable to me then so be it and you know why not (laughs) um and if that has mimetic value then i don't know you know so so i think uh, i tend to be less cynical about it but but absolutely i i think your average dog coin is absolute trash and you know i certainly wouldn't hold it as an investment um but as a novelty why not Yeah, I mean, that's why I have it. I have like my serious investments and then. <laughs> Josh, interestingly, you, I know that you've, you've been doing some work around, you know, the, the, what, what happened to GameStop and, and the mimetic value of GameStop, which is, you know, <clears throat> driven by, by um, retail pe- people having a lot of fun, quite frankly, has yeah, allowed yeah. the company to raise such an enormous amount of money that they got to say, okay, let's pivot now. What, would you, what should we do? So, you know, in some respects, when you suddenly have that much capital, you forget about the failing company that you used to have and you change it. So, you know, I guess that's good for those guys. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're sitting on something like, well, I mean, they're spending a lot of it now, but they're sitting on like $1.7 billion. So, I, yeah, they got a lot of money to spend and they're going in some interesting directions. Um, so yeah, it's fun to see how they've, they've pivoted using this, but, um, so yeah, so the, one of the other things I wanted to sort of ask about was, um, central bank digital currencies, because they've, they've sort of started to spring up into the conversation over the last year or so. Um, the UK government have announced, uh, Britcoin, which is just far too brilliantly named, um, for it to be successful. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> The, the thing that I've been trying to work out is, is like, what is the use case for these central bank digital currencies? Like, what is the what is the underlying value that will make me say, yes, I will use your coin, Bank of England or, or US government? Or is it, is it, will it literally just be the government says you have to do this? Because I can't, because for me, the, a lot of the other sort of um, coins and, and tokens and things that I at least have some understanding of, or I see there being a value in whatever way that the architecture of said coin or token is arranged or the, the, the fundamental underlying base of it, like things like, yeah, just say Bitcoin. I understand that the use of it as a store of value or the Ethereum, I understand that it's got, uh, it, you know, it, it's sort of allowing people to stamp things on, on the Ethereum blockchain or the, I understand the use cases, but for central bank digital currencies, I don't really see what will attract people to them and what will sort of make other than just the government saying, well, this is it. This is what you're using. So there is, there are two sides to the value equation. The one is there is a value to the central bank. And the secondly, what is the value to the retail, the retail you know, citizen who wants to use them? There is most definitely a value to the central bank because the settlement of payment becomes instantaneous as compared to today where you've got to go through all sorts of, you know, semi-governmental agencies to get to get uh, money to settle. So they want the digital currency for two reasons. They want the digital currency because it settles so fast. And in some cases, they want the digital currency so they can surveil the citizens. And China is the most obvious solution of that. So the di- uh, central bank digital currencies are not equivalent. China's is a surveillance tool. We get to see what you spend, and we get to give you black marks if you spend it on the wrong thing. Let's take a hypothetical case of a country that has just a pure replicant of its currency in digital form. It's good for the central bank, it's fast for the commercial bank, and it's probably going to be very easy to use for the citizen. The problem with all this thing is it was invented 
by the crypto community. Not only was it invented by the crypto community, the stable coins that currently exist in crypto, and there are five or six big ones, Simon has mentioned DAI, there's Tether, there's USDC, there's a bunch of others, are hardened over years. They are bug-free. They work. The processes have been ironed out. And now you get 120 companies all doing their own central bank digital companies, and some of them, there is no question, are going to get hacked. So what they should have done is they should have gone to one of the crypto stable bank accounts and says, can we work with you? But obviously that wouldn't make for good politics. I don't, I've not discussed this with Simon, so I'd like to hear it. So CBDCs are a manifestation of how poorly governments are passing technology and understanding them, right? They're a terrible idea. They just make no sense on any level. Firstly, what does it mean for a currency to be digital? Our currencies are already all digital, right? So we yeah, like this is this is my contention with it. Yeah. Like I just like what's different. Your currencies you know? are already digital. The problem governments have with currencies the same they have with every other techno technology implementation is that they're bad at it, right? And so now they're being sold crypto or blockchain by charlatans who are selling this as something that can make their technology implementation better. It just absolutely does not. And there's a fundamental problem, right? Is if you look at what a blockchain is, it's, it's a way of having trust without a central authority. And that's why you need all of this resource consumption. Now, blockchains don't use nearly as much you know, electricity and other resources as some media outlets would have you believe, but they certainly do use a lot. And that's because it turns out that building a trusted network without a central authority requires a lot of extra work, right? So in the case of Nakamoto consensus and Bitcoin, you need proof of work so that you can trust the network. And so that can be trustless. You don't need central authorities. The moment you have a central authority, you don't need to do all of that extra compute because you just have to trust the authority. You no longer have to trust the network, right? So the moment you've got a central bank, which is the authority in your currency network, blockchain technology becomes absolutely moot. It's completely unnecessary. So what central banks should be doing is using other technologies better, right? They should be using, I don't know, DynamoDB um, and learning Go and, and Rust and better programming languages, <laughs> right? They don't need a blockchain. They just need to stop being terrible at technology. A CBDC is the antithesis of a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. It's not the same thing at all, right? Because you've got a central authority. So you're wasting your time with the blockchain. You're wasting your, your time with public key cryptography. You don't need it because you've got a central authority. Secondly, this is something that banks should be railing against because it takes them out of the equation. Because if CBDCs are manifest the way that a lot of central banks are talking about them, the, the end game is that you no longer need a bank. You just bank directly with the state. You know, you will you will open up a bank account with the exchequer. You will open up a bank account with whatever your central bank is in a country. You will no longer need to engage with a middleman bank. And so private banks should be, you know, A, scared shitless, B, railing against CBDCs because it takes them out of the equation. What do we need them for if we can just bank directly with the state? And then there's the absolute Orwellian terror we should all have at being surveilled in our financial transactions 24-7. Um, you know, as Stephen alluded to, that's why China's interested in central bank digital currencies. But don't think that, that Western governments aren't as interested at being able 
to automate, you know, tax deductions, for example, or to see exactly what you're spending and where. So CBDCs are terrifying, unnecessary, a terrible implementation of technology. Um, if they are delivered, it'll, you know, as governments do, it'll it'll be probably decades, not years, before we see any of these things. Um, and and hopefully they'll fail because they're a terrible idea. Do you think they're even capable of keeping up with this space in 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 a way that would allow them to control it like that? Well, that's because I, you know, that that's that's the other question I really have. It's just like, are they, you know, they're they're getting the talk about like I don't know. So I spoke to to Greg Foss. So he's he's a uh, like a former trader who became like a Bitcoin maximalist uh, in Canada, and so he's he's been doing talks with a lot of government um, officials over there. And he's just talking to them about Bitcoin, and and I'm like, these guys are so far. But like, can you can you picture like having to sit them down once a week <laughs> and explain all the developments that's had? Yeah. No, but really, yeah, you yeah. know, can 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 you see that happening? Like you you're trying to explain like NFTs to like 70 year old politicians yeah. who who you know don't have a smartphone and like, that's not to disparage them for not having a smartphone yeah. they're just not in a position to like legislate or 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 have any say in this space you know but like i'm i'm skeptical they can even grasp it enough to keep yeah. up look it's unfair to pick on canada because they're notoriously bad at financial <laughs> technology right like banking <laughs> banking in canada is is literally like stone age you know technology um but you raise an interesting point which is that what however you know central banks do execute in on their their cbdc's is not going to be compatible with the rest of the crypto industry you know i can't imagine any central bank rolling out a currency on the ethereum blockchain that's compatible with uniswap for example and other DeFi protocols so whatever they do is going to be bespoke um as with all you know government technology they're going to get in consulting firms that are going to sell them up the river with buzzwords they're going to get a terrible over-engineered implementation of something that isn't compatible with anything else um it introduces immediate legacy immediate legacy issues um and that's why i you know it, as much as I think a CBDCs are a terrible idea and antithetical to cryptocurrency, I think they also need cryptocurrency to operate because your stable coins, for example, um, would um, you know they'd be complementary because they would you they would allow you to have that currency's um, uh, you know represented in the world of DeFi and crypto in a way that CBDCs just won't. Um, so yeah, I you know I, I kind of agree with the gist of what you're saying. It's, it's going to take a long time to sell the idea. It's going to take even longer to introduce anything um, close to clear thinking on it with with the bureaucrats and politicians that need to get it done. Um, and and even then, it's 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 going to be an echo of of you know what a cryptocurrency stablecoin is in terms of utility. There's, there's a, just to add to this, there's, there's a real danger here in, in the description you gave of the 70-year-old legislator who can't use a, a smartphone. The legislation and the regulation around the entire cryptocurrency ends up on the desks of, of those people. Not to say that they're all 70 and can't use smartphones. There are younger people who know a great deal and they have advisors. But what's happening around the world, if you take a look at the different regulatory regimes that are trying to form rules in order to try and shepherd these cats, these crypto cats, is that you are getting ham-fisted, ham well-intended, but ill-consequenced regulations, 
non-compatible with other countries, non-compatible with other technologies, non-compatible with fiat technologies, just a knee-jerk reaction going on. I mean, this is what's happened in Turkey. In Turkey, what they're doing is they're trying all sorts of things to stop people buying Bitcoin, and they're ruining the economy. So the real danger of the, the speed at which crypto moves versus the speed at which government moves is that you get bad regulation. That's a real danger. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's going to have to be one to, to watch out for. So in, in that sort of vein, uh, do you think this, this revolution in, in the way that finance operates is, is inevitable? Like, is this just going to happen and that there's, there's nothing the big banks can do about it, that they're going to sort of lose their power and just, you know, happily stand back and give up their monster, some of their monstrous share of the economy? Because I, I struggle to see that that will happen sort of happily, shall we say. Um, and, uh, did, but, and did they bring it on themselves? Like, is this just the consequence of, of I don't know, I, I, I think probably like 40, 50 years of, of an increasingly predatory financial system? Yeah, I, I don't think they brought it on themselves particularly. This is just the march of innovation, particularly young innovation. People who have um, the freedom to think up new ideas and try them at very low cost, which is what's happened in this case. Is it going to be noisy and chaotic and painful? There's no question. Is it going to succeed, DeFi and, and, and crypto-related initiatives? I've bet my career in it, so is, so is Simon. I think there's absolutely no question that this stuff is going to triumph. The form in which it will triumph will probably be some weird evolution of banking and financial industries finding some meeting point and growing into each other to form some beast in the future that so that in 2040 there will probably be some meld of the both technologies and we'll all be looking elsewhere for our fun. I don't know if you agree. So. It's interesting that a lot of uh, the work being done in DeFi is being done by um, ex-bankers and people from financial institutions, from the traditional financial world. Um, I think perhaps that's because what's possible here just makes intuitive sense to them in a way that doesn't to you know your, your average um, software engineer. Um, but if you look at a lot of uh, the most prominent DeFi protocols, they're being led by people who come from the traditional financial world and who have seen the writing on the wall. It's also interesting when I do engage with bankers and when I go and do talks at financial institutions, how open they are to these things. Um, and you're starting to see them embrace it in some ways. So, for example, Visa is experimenting with settlements on the Ethereum blockchain using the USDC stablecoin and others. Um, you know, that's a, de that's a DeFi undertaking. Um, and so, uh, you know, as always, things will be messy and complicated and, and there'll be a lot of nuance required in, in talking about it. There won't be any binary decision making. You know, some banks will be against it. But, but already, you know, you've got banks in the UK that are allowing you to, to trade Bitcoin OTC from your account with them um, and, and starting to hold cryptocurrency oh, really? for Straight you. From yeah, yeah. So, so for example, you can you, know you can buy cryptocurrency using your Revolut account as a simple example, right? And you can hold cryptocurrency with Revolut. Oh, yeah. um, there's some of the traditional banks that are piloting these things as well. Unfortunately, I can't mention names there because these are um, projects that I've been exposed to that are under wraps. Um, but that's happening, okay. right? So well, I will actually, sorry, very <laughs> sorry, really quick, um, plug uh, a friend of mine and who has appeared in the show twice, uh, Johnny McCamley. Uh, whose company CryptoClear are about to launch 
what I believe to be Europe's first crypto um, ETI so that people can go s take money straight from their like investment pot in their like banking app from NatWest or Lloyd's or, you know, HSBC and invest directly in their fund, which will be, yeah, a crypto fund with like, like yeah, a bunch of different currencies, like primarily like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Cardano, like just a bunch of the sort of high market cap coins. But they're about to launch the first the first one in Europe. Um, which is very cool for them. So yeah, I got got to give them a plug. <laughs> yeah, that is cool. So so yeah, I mean, you know, DeFi is is something that will be used by the traditional financial industry if they're smart. Um, I I often think of the early days of Linux and open source software. You know, if you go back two decades, you had companies like Microsoft that literally employed millions of dollars to combat this movement. Um, and and Microsoft famously had an advertising campaign called Get the Facts. And they plastered billboards, they placed advertorial, they ran television adverts, just, you know, trying to kind of smear Linux and open source and going, look, this stuff is insecure. Who's going to support it in your company if you adopt it? It's a terrible idea. Just railing against it. Skip forward two decades and Microsoft is now arguably the biggest single proponent of open source software. If you download Windows 11 or, or previous versions of, of the latest Windows 10, you actually get the Linux kernel shipped with it, right? You've got the Windows subsystem for Linux. Um, Microsoft has embraced this. And I'd argue that's why Microsoft is still around and so many enterprise technology companies that insisted that this stuff would go away if they fought it hard enough aren't. And so I suspect there'll be two kind of financial institutions in the future. There'll be the financial institutions that see the writing on the wall, that see where things are going, that embrace this technology. Um, and there'll be those that rail against it. And we won't be talking about them in two decades. Mm. Okay, well, guys, um, I really, really want to thank you for your time. Um, it's been been an absolute pleasure to to be able to chat to you both. Um, definitely learned like an, an absolute ton um, just from talking, and I'm sure I will as I continue to, yeah, finish your book Beyond Bitcoin: Decentralized Finance and the End of Banks. Everybody, go check it out. Um, so, is there anything else you would like to sort of plug or add or or finish up like final thoughts for uh, for listeners and viewers? Yeah, this is just a plug for you. So the, the book releases on Kindle on, on January the 6th, and that's going to be in stores a couple, in a couple of weeks from now. And you're our very first podcast, so that's a plug for you. Thank you very much. No, oh, not a problem, guys. Yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, you're, uh, I don't know if it's the agent, Ruth Killick. She she uh, she recommended the book to me and, and sent it out, so I have to, I have to thank her, really. Um, I wouldn't have come across it otherwise. There we go. Thanks, Ruth. Thanks. But yeah, um, is there? Do 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 you guys like put uh, use social media much? Is there anywhere you want to point people towards that you they can follow your work? Mine's all focused on Twitter, so at Simon Dingle on Twitter. Uh, that's pretty much the only social media I can stomach. <laughs> uh, I'm I'm on uh, both Twitter and Facebook at Stephen Sidley. Okay, perfect. Well, I will find the profiles. I'll put them in the description below. And uh, yeah, so th thanks very much, guys. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. Thanks, pleasure. Thank you for... Uh, Thank you very much, Josh. Take care, Josh. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.